Welcome back, everyone, to COVID-19, A Perspectives podcast. I am here with Chuck Radis, uh, who's going to be bringing a wealth of experience to us today from the state of Maine in the U.S. So thank you so much for taking some time with me. I guess, can we, if you can start off with just saying who you are, what your, uh, your title and position are, and where you're located right now. Sure. My name is uh, Chuck Radis. I'm a rheumatologist. That's a doctor who specializes in autoimmune diseases. And I am a professor at the University of New England and the Department of Medicine. Uh, That's a part-time job. I work part-time up the coast near Acadia National Park in uh, a small clinic up there. And I live on Peaks Island, which is about two miles off the coast of Portland, which is the largest city in Maine. And we have about a thousand people who live here year round. So it's interesting. It's such a small community and such a unique community as well. I have really fond memories of Peak Island, but uh, it is, it's such a, it's just a small place and, and feels very connected, but at the same time, also very remote. So I do want to ask especially being on the East Coast and being so close to what many would be considered the epicenter of the the epidemic in the United States, being close to New York. What's been the biggest surprise about how COVID pandemic has unfolded? In in the big picture in the United States or in our little picture? Both would be, uh, I'd love to hear both ideas. Sure. Yeah, I think the biggest surprise in the U.S. for me has been how lopsided the numbers are are for, say, New England, where, you know, when you count in Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York, there's far more cases and fatalities than most countries around the world. And uh, yet, in a lot of other parts of the United States, it may be delayed, but that those numbers... If they played out over the whole United States, we would have, you know, 10 times the number of cases and fatalities mm. in the United States. So for some reason, maybe they were the earliest, and that's the reason why uh, they didn't, weren't able to put a lid on it as quickly. But that's a big surprise. And then um, the surprise locally has been that even though quite a few people come out to Peaks Island to shelter from those high-risk areas, uh, we've had very few cases out here. And we have had some cases. We, we, we have less than a half a dozen. And all of our people who've gotten uh, sick from COVID here on the island have recovered. Wonderful. Uh, the, the surprise has been, uh, you know, we go back and forth on the ferry and, and people wear masks, but that uh, there hasn't been more transmission. And it's been very... It's been a, a, a little bit of a controversy about folks coming up here from high-risk areas. Mm. And for the most part, they do quarantine. You know, they come up, say, to a, a summer cottage that they own, and they're not in the grocery store. Uh, they're not down by the gas station. But sometimes they are. You know, so there's been incidences of people interacting with islanders and making islanders very uncomfortable because they've come up from New York City. So I think the surprise on the island has been how few cases we've had, and that's in spite of quite a bit of interaction. 
Do you do you attribute that to to a particular factor, or is it is it a little bit of luck that's kind of played into that? Well, you know, we had a little lead time. I, I don't know. It's hard to put a finger on luck. I, I think <laughs> most people up here use uh, masks and, and wash a lot and are respecting you know the six foot distances and. When it doesn't happen, there's a lot of social pressure for people to to abide by that. Uh, and and like in some parts of the country where the people are protesting the restrictions, you know they they're able to kind of get a lot of publicity and, and kind of have a show of force so that they're overwhelming the people who feel like they're being put at risk. Out here, it's the opposite. There may be an occasional person or group that says, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask. You know, hey. I don't care. You can't tell me that I can't go into the grocery store without a mask. But there's lots of social pressure for them not to do that. They don't have like overwhelming support on their end. So hmm. that's that's been good. And there's been a few incidences on the island which are kind of crazy, uh, forcing people to social distance. I don't know if you heard. Can I tell you a quick story? I would love to up hear that. Coast? Yes. Yeah. So up the coast is uh, our. We have 14 year-round islands on, in Maine. They all have their own little schools and everything. And up in Islesboro, early on, a family came up from uh, you know a high-risk area, and they were just out all the time, and they were going to the grocery store, and people were t- telling them, you know, stay inside. You need to quarantine for two weeks. We own our house. We're, we're doing whatever we want. So after that has continued for two or three days, a couple of people in the middle of the night took chainsaws, and cut down trees in their front yard and their backyard and blocked their entrance and exit doors so that they couldn't leave their house. And that found its way into the news. Nobody was hurt, but it was like saying, no, you don't understand. You are quarantined. That is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Uh, that is not some a piece of news that has made it here. We haven't heard a whole lot of that story. So we we do get we do hear about the the protests, uh, you know, uh, and the the protest to end the lockdown, the protest to quarantine, the protest to wear masks and and maintain uh, physical distancing. We saw some of the uh, the Mother's Day you know restaurants opening and and getting completely flooded and kind of chaos that came from that. Uh, it's interesting to hear the other side of it, of people actually taking it into their own hands and saying, nope, you're going to stay in your house for the next two weeks. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and it'll be interesting to see what, what happens in the, the next week or two here, because you know, one of the things that happened right off the bat was that uh, our ferry service was dropped to about 20% of normal, uh, because... The worry was if, if some of the crew got sick, that we'd actually lose our ferry. They'd have to shut it down. And now they're opening it up, and we're, we're coming into the visitor season. And so there will be people traveling back and forth on the island who we don't know. And if they're not wearing masks, or if they're crowding together, or if they're sick and they're still on the boat, it'll be interesting to see how social pressure works on that. Because I think people are worried about that. Yeah. We've done, you know, we only have four cases out here. But that if we get tourists who aren't abiding by the rules, I could see some conflict there. And I'm not sure how that would be handled. You know, the police don't ride the boat. You know, it can't be 
and the cap, the crew on the boat are not policemen. Yeah. They can't force people. There's some concern that, you know, we could have some incidents there. I wish it could be as, in a way, kind of funny as the other one. You know, I wish there was a way of uh, getting people to pay attention. Uh, yeah. Just, <laughs> just take out the dock <laughs> temporarily or... Just, just get away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it could be it could be really interesting. The next the next few yeah. weeks over uh, in a lot of parts of the country, uh, especially in rural areas that do rely on seasonal work and seasonal tourism, are going to have right. unique experiences. I talked with a, a physician assistant in in Roseburg, Oregon, which is kind of in southern Oregon, and they're a fairly isolated community, fairly small town, and I was I was really surprised to hear that they. And they tend to be very conservative. I was surprised to hear that their community was very much split on whether or not they should reopen or whether they should stay closed. How is how do you perceive Peace Island and also Portland, Maine being in stance? Is it more leaning towards, yes, we need to open, or is it split? Yeah, I, I think... The part that uh, it, it's not either open or close. It's if you're open, how do you handle that? Mm. And so, for instance, we have a coffee shop that you remember uh, from the wedding that is down there, the ferry, and she closed, you know, about two and a half months ago, and, and just getting, you know, hammered by not having her little business open. And three days ago, she opened up, but the way she opened up was. She stands at the open door behind the desk. The credit card is right where the customer is. The customer comes to the door. They look in the window at her pastries. They point to what they want. Her assistant gets their coffee, puts it in a bag with what they pointed. The customer puts the credit card in the machine so that nobody even touches it. And then they hand the bag. And so, um, you know, people are lined up, and uh, everybody was ecstatic that she was open place to get some coffee during the day and you yeah. know, she has good pastry so places are trying to find inventive ways of opening that that aren't like in your face okay we're opening no matter what you know it's not like a bar you know we're gonna have 200 people in here because we feel it's our right to do that so i think they're trying to figure out ways to uh, have a trickle of visitors out here make some money so that these really fragile businesses don't go under because, you know, it's really a 10-week season for a lot of these businesses. And if, if they can't make some money this summer, they're bankrupt. Yeah. You know, so that, that is the reality. So uh, we, we really are supporting that. We're supporting one of the restaurants out here that is doing takeout. And so uh, I think if it's done well, there won't be that much controversy about it. You know? So far, so good. And and you see that being pretty well respected in your community, and it, I guess the the hope um, will be as same as you shared with the ferry. Well, you know, when when tourist season starts, you'll just have to hope that people are still patient and still willing to support the local businesses while appreciating the precautions that are being taken. Hopefully, that yeah, holds for you guys. It is a balance. Yeah, we have a COVID committee here with uh, you know has both the churches in it has nurses, a couple doctors, community people, and like it, it's 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 trying to anticipate this next level, you know. Like we've worked closely with the grocery store to try to uh, make sure that everybody's aware that if they come, 
and they have to quarantine, there's a phone number on the grocery store that they can call that somebody will shop for them. Uh-huh. So call this number. Do not come into the store if you've just arrived. We have a you know a number of shoppers that are willing to do the shopping for people and not drop it off. Uh, we have a mental health phone line now if people are getting frustrated at being indoors. So, you know, there's going to be some bumps in the road here, but I'm, I'm hoping that uh, there won't be any really escalation in conflict yeah. as things open up. Yeah. Hey, you, you mentioned just now the phone line for uh, for mental health and for the, the local grocery store. That's something that's been echoed a little bit in, in some of the other conversations that I've had is some people think that there's a potentially really positive outcome from how this has spread so quickly in the United States and the fear around it in, in that one, mental health is getting a serious boost and people are taking more advantage of it and realizing how serious it is. And also in access to that, uh, lots of places are doing telemedicine, uh, you know, quick mental health check-ins with, uh, with trained psychologists and counselors. And, and so mental health is actually being taken a little bit more seriously, I think. Is, is that something that, that you think will stay after this is after this is all over right yeah you know I, I think what I've seen in the last 10 years even before this has been better acceptance of the need for good mental health services so it's been like a slow movement toward that and when this hit so many people stepped forward to volunteer to be mental health counselors and Yes, I, I think to some extent, you know, things will go back to normal, you know, for a, a lot of people taking advantage of mental health services. But um, it's been changing in the years before this hit, I think. And, and I think this is a big nudge forward. And, and, you know, I think particularly for mental health services, telemedicine can be really effective. I mean, there's even some advantages over that where you know, some people have a phobia about traveling and going into an office, sitting in a waiting room with people. You know, I think in particular mental health services can be very successful over telemedicine. So I'm, I think that this is, this is good. That part won't go away. You know, that, that's going to continue, I think. And I was involved just a little bit in a couple of the bills in Maine in trying to reimburse uh, healthcare workers for telemedicine mm. uh, like three years ago. Because, you know, that obviously, you know, there has to be a mechanism for people to be paid and how to, how to create a bill and do you pay it at an equal rate as an up in service? Uh, you know, how, how do you really judge, judge it? You know, so Maine passed those bills about three years ago. And so, you know, there was already a mechanism. And it varied. I remember when we were researching it three years ago, it varied tremendously around the state. You know, some states, there was no way for anybody to get reimbursed if they did something over the phone. Mm. And some states were ahead of me. And the more rural a state was, the more likely they had some kind of telemedicine legislation on the books already. So that's that's only going to uh, improve. And so I, I, I see that's a big positive, too. That's great. Yeah, that's so interesting that it's yeah. it's such a divisive thing in medicine when, I mean, you think about uh, lawyers in litigation that have been billing for phone conversations for 
decades uh, with you know without batting an eyelash and and yet and yet doctors doctors and mental health professionals haven't been able to until very recently in spite of you know some great advances in technology that let you actually see patients and um, have a little bit of face to face of course there's things missing but that's so yeah, interesting yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I was really curious about and why I was really excited to to talk to you Chuck is is because of, of how much experience you've you've had and how long you've been practicing in your community I am I'm really curious how you see from the healthcare perspective how this pandemic has been handled differently than previous epidemics whether it be you know uh, h1n1 uh, swine flu or uh, ebola or dating back to um, to, to aids and hiv pandemics a much you know a couple decades ago how is this different from a healthcare perspective that's making it the reaction seem so chaotic right um, well, you know, so many of these other major health epidemics that, that have happened in the last, say, 30 years, um, the logistics were sim- much simpler. You know, so we had swine flu. I don't know if you remember that. Swine flu maybe 20-some years ago. You know, that was really a case of developing a vaccine, and it was, it, you know, it was a variant of influenza. So, you know, there was a good vaccine right before it hit. Like it was predicted to hit. And so the logistics of it were really ramping up immunizations. And, and, you know, they immunized so many more people that year because they'd already seen snippets that swine flu was going to be very bad. But they had a vaccine. And that was one of my first jobs. I was a, a swine flu jet gunner when I was in college. And uh, they hired a bunch of college kids. That, that you could uh, immunize people with a little jet gun that would have a vial on it that would have like a hundred doses and it would shoot the vaccine in. You press it against the person's shoulder and press the gun. And so I would go to these communities around Maine and immunize like 400 people at a clinic. You know, there'd be a line stretching around the thing because people were really scared and that worked out really well. It worked out so well that people thought that it was a false alarm. So many people got immunized, then, and then the epidemic didn't happen to as great extent. And, uh, and so that was an example of having everything all set. This, uh, you know, kind of came, unfortunately, when uh, we were not prepared, you know, with a pandemic response nationally. And it became piecemeal, you know, between the states. Some states uh, were very good at implementing things, but, you know, there's been a huge, uh, not only don't we have a back vaccine, but, you know, early on, there wasn't enough equipment. And the nice thing about the island, so we have this little committee going. Within days, we had people sewing masks on the island, and the churches distributed the masks. So, you know, anybody who wanted a mask on Peaks Island, they could get a mask very quickly. So small communities, I think, have had to step up, and uh, bigger populations that you know had tremendous numbers of sick people coming in. They, they, you know, they were not able to prepare like they should have been able to prepare. I mean, it is a very different Can thing. I say preparing. One more? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one one last thing about Ebola. Um, I think that 
we don't appreciate in the United States the work of the World Health Organization and other uh, health organizations in making sure Ebola didn't jump to Europe or to North America or to Asia. I mean, we, it's almost like the swine flu epidemic because it was always a problem in small areas of Africa with very high fatality rates. Um, now it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't have to worry about Ebola. But if the WHO had not done a great job of containing it, if just a handful of people been able to get on flights who were sick and transmitted it to San Francisco, I mean, it's amazing what didn't happen with that. So that was a great example of public health preventiveness that was able to uh, keep it in a small area. So we, there's been a lot of successes in public health, and, you know, this has not been one of them. You know? <laughs> so. Has there been a significant change? I mean, Ebola was, gosh, it must have been, that was about seven, seven, eight years ago, right, if I'm remembering it, where, where, where we were starting to get scared in the, in the U.S. that there was potential transmission. I remember working at, at St. Charles in Bend and, and, you know, going through some of the precautions and, you know, start having training. People come in from, from public health to help train us on, like, how we would deal with, with you know, quarantining yeah. patients and set up rooms and all that. Um, right. And did, did did you did any of that kind of happen when COVID was starting to break out in China and and we started seeing countries kind of uh, you know move across from Korea and Japan and um, into into Europe was that starting to happen in the states Did you hear about that Well, I can only speak to say Maine Medical Center, which is our major hospital in Portland. You know, they really had a great daily. Uh, group meeting and looking at equipment and looking at plan because I know they had a really when I was more involved over there they were very involved like with Ebola like you were talking about they, they had a great uh, series of, of uh, what ifs uh, with the Ebola and they did the same thing with this you know they cataloged all the ventilators they talked about actually giving doctors who'd recently retired uh, giving them uh, temporary privileges if they needed a kind of a ramp up number of providers. They did, they did a lot. So uh, all I all I can speak to is locally. I think they and they were able to anticipate, and maybe that's part of the reason why uh, Portland. You know, we have about a quarter of a million people within 20 miles of here, and you know, relatively few cases. And so I think a lot of communities did the right thing, but the, but they're you know, uh, the budget, say, on the state level or the or the kind of the uh, steady advice from the federal level that speaking with one voice was lacking mm. on this. Yeah, that that's yeah. something that's been pretty evident from abroad as well, you know, as we as we see things and see the message change continually. And, uh, right. Yeah, I, I think right. I think you're probably right in the. the the preparedness and, and in smaller communities knowing how important it is to keep their community healthy and uh, that adage I guess you know when you've done things right you won't be sure you've done anything at all that's right <laughs> and and in, when the appreciate yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that that's probably true it would be going back to right h1n1 and Ebola and you know in this this time we may not have done things right and people are pretty sure we didn't do things right so <laughs> But but not everywhere, and that's and that's the really thing that I think is really extraordinary. Is there are some uh, some communities out there that have done an, an exceptional job in being prepared and and staying vigilant and 
taking the appropriate precautions uh, to, to help stem what's happening. So that there's a lot of silver linings out there that I don't think we get to hear about very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in your community, as we were talking earlier about reopening and the tourist season, how long term do you think the effects are going to be for Peaks Island and, and some of the other really small uh, rural and tourist communities in the Northeast? Having such close proximity to, to some major epicenters, do you, do you think that there that there's a reasonable recovery on the horizon or do you think it's potentially years off? Yeah, I think the summer's going to be rough economically. You know, I don't think there'll be a recovery this summer. Um, I'm, as an optimist, I mean, that's kind of how I'm wired. Uh, I, I hope uh, that uh, there could be a breakthrough in a vaccine, which would be a game changer. You know, if it was a low risk, highly effective vaccine, then that will really reset the needle. And if remdesivir, which was approved by the FDA, the first antiviral that has some effectiveness, um, if it's joined pretty quickly with uh, others, other effective medicines. So the example I give you right now is that, you know, we, we immunize like crazy against influenza, but for people who get it in spite of that or aren't vaccinated, we have a really good antiviral, we have Tamiflu. Mm -hmm. And if you start to get a, uh, an outbreak in a nursing home where one person gets influenza, you know, gets hospitalized, they give everybody in the nursing home prophylactic Tamiflu. You know, everybody, everybody gets treated as a prevention. We know that's very effective. And my hope as an optimist is that in the coming months, you know, Count the months: three months, six months, nine months. Uh, you know there'll be there'll be uh, an established treatment, maybe a combination of meds that you can give not only to treat early disease, but uh, you know maybe in hot spots in veterans' homes and nursing homes where you know you treat everyone. And you know that that the pace of that ability to do that is accelerated in recent years because of immunology. Is so much better understood. I'm hoping they'll be able to develop a uh, vaccine quicker. But you know, we're still waiting. You know, uh, malaria vaccine been worked on for decades. You know, yeah. so uh, uh, HIV, uh, we still not quite there with HIV. Although there's a semi-effective HIV vaccine, so mm -hmm. it's tough. Yeah, it is. Do you uh, do you yeah, see so this economically? Yeah. yeah. Do you do you see this making an impact? On, on how epidemiology and how some medicine is actually taught, right? I mean, you mentioned that, you know, uh, teaching at the university. Are, is there going to be like a uh, COVID class uh, that they're, that they're going to go through, uh, you know, whether it be in virology or, in, or, or as part of a medical degree? Do you see that happening in the near future? Wow. Uh, I hadn't thought about that. Um, certainly, I think there's a new respect for epidemiology and public health work and, and for healthcare workers in general. I mean, I think people, I, I've had this thing about using the word hero too loosely. I mean, just because a person's a sports hero 
that's a complete inappropriate use of the word. You know, they're just doing their best. You know, there's nothing heroic about somebody who even does a four-minute mile. I mean, it's great. It's yeah. a talent, and they push themselves. But hero heroism involves something selfless. You know, putting yourself at risk for others. That's a definition of heroism. And people are really appreciating healthcare workers, and so. I think there's a lot of lessons to be taught in terms of both epidemiology and public health, but also about uh, you know the the honor to be involved in healthcare, whether you know you're a CNA or a nurse. I mean, you know, I think people are going to respect that whole area. I know nursing, you know, was having trouble filling the ranks in recent years. Uh, you know, it's 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 uh, an occupation that. On the on the on the end of CNAs, you know, they were being filled, but RNs who were so talented, uh, they you know, it was hard to fill those classes. I think there's a lot of people going to go into nursing now. So, I think some of those things will change. It'd be nice if there was a class in, uh, in uh, you know, what went right and what went wrong in the COVID epidemic taught in medical schools. It'd be interesting. Yeah, I think I think it would. I think I mean the the retrospective information that I think we can hopefully try to remember and try to teach future generations here it could be really incredible and really impactful because I mean, from whether, whether you're talking about, about modern medicine, whether you're talking about access and communication, whether you're talking about mental health or whether you're talking about, uh, you know, public health, which you know, seems to be this continually growing field. There's, yeah so much to learn when we have these, uh, I don't want to use the word failure, but that's kind of what it seems like. Um, you know, there's so much that we learn when we, when we fail and when we fail multiple times in a row, there's a lot we can hopefully gain from it. I, that's what I, that's what I'm really remaining the most hopeful for is that there's some really meaningful long-term change um, across, you know, what we consider to be normal, what we consider to be respected, uh, even to, to the highest level of considering who are our heroes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I hope that the general public, in addition to professions, remember some of this. And um, But it's also kind of scary for me being abroad and, and seeing how people are acting and, and that fear of of gosh, are we gonna remember this, or, or are we just going to have such short-sighted yeah. memories that we just click and everything's back to normal? Yeah, I I worry about that too. Um, but you know, for the people who've been really really involved in this, and and uh, it is, you have to keep it out here. The lessons we learn as we go forward, or they will be forgotten. And actually, the you know, kind of the the people who write the history about this have to be the right people. It can't be people who are minimizing it, or uh, you know, which it seems it's a little easier to rewrite history nowadays in this country. And so, uh, one has to be aware of people's political views when they're talking about these kind of things. So. Uh, Ultimately, I'm hoping that uh, we do learn those lessons. I share that with you. Yeah. So, yeah. I will. I will hope. Well, looking forward, um, 
I'm going to hope uh, that, that you guys, you know, continue to stay safe and that the, the tourist season uh, goes smoothly and, and is also uh, it helps keep the community afloat yeah. and that you guys are able to, to maintain that balance. Um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time with me, Shaq. It's been a really cool conversation and uh, I thank you for sharing your perspective with me. Jacob, take care and, and uh, give Jackson our best.